Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. Claude, thank you, moms. Awesome, and if your mother doesn't live around here and she's still around, as we say down south, call yo mama. You know, call her today. Tell her hello. You love her. You appreciate her. If this is your first time with us here at the Vineyard, welcome. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we have been in a series that, as you can see from the bumper videos, called Christ and Culture. We have been taking a look at some of the, I guess you'd say, hot-button issues, some of the things in culture that uh, the church, I feel like, needs to wrestle with and try to deal with. We, uh, we kind of dance around. In church, we're known to dance around certain issues. And uh, so, you know, why not jump in and let's take a look at some of the issues. Today, it's Mom's Day. It's Mother's Day. So what better day than to take a look at women in the Scripture and what does the Bible have to say, at least we're going to look at one section of Scripture, about women about women in the Bible, about women in the church. What does it say about women in the church? And uh, when you talk about this kind of thing, I I had no idea from my background uh, until many years being a Christian that this was such a a difficult topic for some people, that uh, some churches are very uh, one-sided in this issue and another side this way. There's two terms that are used that I I don't... uh, think are that helpful, complementarian, some say that the church is complementarian, or it's egalitarian. Uh, Complementarian means that while women are equal, uh, they they complement one another, but their roles cannot be the same. In other words, even in the church, a complementarian would say that there are certain roles in the church that a woman cannot have and carry in the church. An egalitarian, which equal, believes that women are equal and, and, uh, and can serve in any role, role in the church. And so, you ha- But the thing is, those words are so weird because I don't know a complementarian that doesn't believe that women are equal to men. And I don't know an egalitarian that doesn't believe that men and women complement one another. And so I don't think the terms are helpful. So we're not going to talk about them anymore. And so we're going to look at some scripture. We're going to look at the scripture in a very challenging one today and uh, see what it has to say. Um, All of us come into this thing called following Jesus with a certain mindset, even when it comes to this, uh, depending on probably how you were raised, uh, what kind of family, your family of origin. Also, probably if you have a... Uh, Christian background or a religious background of any kind, most likely that church or that system or that faith had some take on men and women and how they relate to one another, and especially true in the church. I just want to say that uh, growing up, uh, my mom and dad owned a business. That's all I've ever known my whole life was my dad owned a construction business. Mom was the bookkeeper. She made the bills. There was always an office at our house, and Dad would put the crews together. They would go out and build things. 
and he would come in with his list of what it costs, give it to mom, mom would write the bills up, send the bills out, get the money, pay the money, see that we as my brothers and I were all taken care of and that the bills were paid. It was a great partnership. I, I, watching them till I left the house at 18, 19 years old, I mean, I never saw them not work together as a team. And so it never occurred to me that coming into Christianity that this was such a, a touchy subject about men and women in the church. Uh, and the first church I went to uh, was Karen's church, uh, Southern Baptist Church, because I had to go to it to date her. That was her prerequisite before I was a Christian. And, uh, and so I would go there, and though I never heard anything from the preacher's mouth that said that women couldn't serve, I noticed that there were no women ever up on the podium, and uh, there were no deacons that I saw in, the, in those particular churches that were women. And, and, but I just thought, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe there's not any that want to serve or something, you know. And so then we went off to college, and I went to a Lutheran church, and, and uh, then we came back, and we, we ended up in an Assemblies of God church. And going to an Assemblies of God church, it was, as a matter of fact, that was the first church I served at. I was 28 years old. And I went on staff as a youth pastor at Assemblies of God. And it was not uncommon to have uh, women pastors and preachers and evangelists come through and preach. And, uh, and it was just, it was their culture. That's the way it was. And then about 15 of us started a church together when we were 30 years old. It's still around Christ Community Church over in Conway. And uh, about 15 of us got together and decided we were going to start that church. And that church started out as kind of a part of the discipleship movement. Now, the discipleship movement was a little really tough. It was a, more of a man type of group. You know, we men would get together and chop firewood, you know, and we would get in each other's faces about being good men and good husbands. I mean, you know, what does a 30-year-old know about being, you know, a good husband? Not much, you know. And so we would even give our wives permission to call one another if we weren't treating them well. And, like, if, if your husband's not treating you well, ladies, you just call one of the guys in the group. We'll take care of it. <laughs> you know, so, you know, if, if, if somebody was yelling too much and it was getting too heated or the wife wasn't being treated with respect and all, you'd get a phone call. We've got to have a talk with so-and-so. It almost sounds like the mafia, doesn't it? Like, let's, we got to, but it was, it was all done in love. It was all done in love. And so we'd say, hey, Tim, we've got to meet with you. And you go, oh, man, what did I do? And so a couple of the brothers would get with me and go, man, we've heard you're not treating Karen well. You know that really is not good. You're a Christian and you should love her like Christ loves the church and gave himself for it. Now, how can we help you? First, you're going to repent. <laughs> and you will repent, son. <laughs> and, and then we will help you. We will help you. We'll look at the scripture and we'll support you. And... Uh, but we also, even with it being that kind of a man-centered type of beginning to that church, we also had ladies and women that would come in and preach. They'd share and preach, and I mean, never gave it much of a thought, but we, we rarely had women on our eldership board. Now, a lot of times our wives would join us, you know, and uh, I always thought it was good because we got a different perspective. A woman has a different perspective many times than a man and sees and hears things that men don't. And, and so I always enjoyed it when the women joined us and so that we could get the full picture, a broader picture of things. So that's my past. You've got one too. You've got a history. You've got a set of lens uh, that you see this issue through. 
uh, whether you realize it or not. And the scripture, most of the time, is always challenging to us. It's always kind of bending us. We're really coming to this thing bent, as I said last week. And God works to straighten us, to, to get us to look like Christ. And so today we're going to look at probably the, the harshest scripture, some people would say, having to do with men and women in the church. And that's in 1 Timothy, the second chapter, the ninth through the 15th verses. Uh, we're going to read this, pray, but I want to give you, even bef- after I read this, I want to give you some foundational understanding of how to approach this scripture that I think will help us uh, get some clarity. Uh, last time we did a survey in our church, there were uh, 58% of our church were women. Um, and so, you know, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good majority, I think, 58%. Uh, now in America, I think it's like 51%, you know, 49% men. And so, um, you know, they deserve to know, hey, what's up, you know, with the scripture. And so we're going to take a look at this. First Timothy 2, 9 through 15. Let's read this first. And then I want to give you a little bit of a uh, kind of a template to take this scripture through. And we'll look at it. Uh, by the way, you do have a handout a fill-in in your handout, and you probably got a pen. If you just want to follow along with me, you can do that too. Let's read this and we'll pray. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Father, we ask for understanding in this scripture. Uh, We ask for you to help us read this in such a way that we can understand what Paul was trying to get at. I ask for help this morning as we take apart this scripture. I ask for understanding. I ask that you would help me uh, deal with my own biases and my own uh, maybe background and all of this and that we could see what you're getting at. Lord, that's all we want. We want to be able to see you clear and why you had Paul write this. What is the benefit to the church of these verses. And so we need your help in order for this to happen. I need your help, Lord. So help me in my weakness. Holy Spirit, you said you would come and teach us. And so we welcome you, Holy Spirit. Come, teach us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a little bit harsh, don't you think? You guys read this in this culture, in the 21st century, and you read this stuff. And I imagine, depending again on your background, Uh, how you feel about this, but, you know, I can imagine uh, women hearing this read and going, oh, some of you going, this is why I think the Bible could be an antiquated, out-of-date book because of something just like this. And uh, so that's why, one of the reasons I want to look at it. One of the things we want to consider up front is this, what was God's original design That's your first fill-in. We need to consider God's design. What what did he have in mind for man and woman in the beginning? 
the last three weeks as we've looked at, we looked at sex the first week. Last week we looked at homosexuality. Today we're looking at women in the church. All three weeks we started with that word. What was God's design? What was God's design? So over in Genesis 1, let's just read a few verses here. Genesis 1 and 26. God said, let us make mankind, mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they, right, plural, they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So together in the beginning, they ruled together. That's what it sounds like to me, right? He created them. They ruled over the animals. They ruled over all of creation. Things seem to be very good. As we move on into chapter 2 and verse 25, we read that the relationship between the man and the woman in the beginning was so good that we read that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There was no shaming in this relationship. The original relationship, you didn't have the husband being shamed by the wife and you didn't have the wife being shamed by the husband. What a wonderful relationship to know that the person that loves you the most will not do anything or say anything to you to shame you. And the original, the original plan, it looks to me like here, was that man and woman ruled together. They ruled uh, this Garden of Eden together. And that they had such a perfect environment and such a perfect relationship that there was absolutely no shame in the relationship. Then we jump over to chapter 3 in Genesis. Things are going great, right? Then we get to chapter 3 in verse 16, and we know that sin entered humanity, that suddenly there's a problem. Sin has come and things are changing And so in Genesis 3 and verse 16, we began to read these words from God to the man and the woman. To the woman, he said, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That's after sin entered, correct? We don't read anything like that prior to sin entering the human race at all. And it says to Adam in verse 17, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are to dust, you will return. And we see here that in the beginning it wasn't a toil to work. I know some of us think that work is a curse, but that, you know, working was a gift originally. Originally, taking care of the garden and taking care of God's creation was a wonderful thing. It wasn't a hard thing. And now, after sin entered the human race, instead of Adam going to pick fruit off of this beautiful, luscious vine, when he goes to get it now, there's a thorn sitting there that pricks him. There's heat. There's sweat. 
the ground sometimes does not produce the crop that he wanted. Sin has brought all of this into humanity right along with what we see with the woman that now she is going to have unbearable pain in having her child. This is before they had the spinal and, uh, and all of this, you know. And you're going to have pain now. And also, you know what? You're going to have a desire for your husband. You're going to want your husband to be with you. And there are going to be times when he's not going to be there. And you're going to want him so bad to be there. And he won't be there for you emotionally. He won't be there for you physically. And not only that, but he's going to rule over you. He's going to think you belong to him. And he's going to treat you like he has the authority over you. All of that was part of the what? The fall. That was after sin came into the human race. Prior to that, the husband and wife ruled together. There was no shaming between the two. They had a beautiful life. So there's God's design. And then we read Galatians 3.26 where Paul is making the statement about getting back to where God wants creation to be. And he's, he's giving this picture of the kingdom of God, really. That is where God gets his way, where the rule and the reign of God comes. And he says that in Christ Jesus, listen to this, that there is equality and redemption. Because he says, and this is in the New Testament, neither male or female. There's neither male nor female in Christ Jesus, neither Jew nor Gentile nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But when Christ has come, he has leveled the ground as far as who is more valuable than another. That in Jesus Christ, we all have an immense value. We're all loved by him. We're all appreciated by him. No one can claim to have a step up over the other one. Not the Jew over the Gentile. Not the male over the female. None. We are all on the same level when it comes to how much God loves us and what he paid. And so that's God's design. So as we read this Tough scripture in 1 Timothy 2. Let's remember his design. We went back, we looked at it. And secondly, in your fill-in, we want to consider God's gifting. God's gifting. And that is that God gifts people, men and women. He gives them gifts, the Bible says. And in Acts 2.18, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on, on the church for the first time in the response to that beautiful prophecy that Joel gave that one day the Holy Spirit would come and it would be poured out on men and women and our sons and our daughters would prophesy. Our young men would dream dreams and the old guys would see visions and we would, you know, everybody would be included from the youngest to the oldest through the male to the female. Everybody would have the Holy Spirit poured out on them and everyone could prophesy, proclaim the word of God. And there at Pentecost in Acts 2 is where we see that happening. And Peter begins to preach this and says, this day has come upon us. That day. And so there's giftings like prophecy and all that were poured out. And, and he's saying that I'll pour my spirit out on all of you. And in the vineyard, one of the things that I hold very dear here is that we always look for gifting. We don't look for people and say, what kind of person is this? What kind of person is that? We always look to see if there is a gift operating in the person. First, our founder, John Wimber. I have people come to me sometimes that I work with to be church planters or, or young preachers, and, and the question I get a lot is, when can I get ordained? You know, when can I get ordained? And John used to say, John Wimber used to say, show me your puppies and I will give you your papers. 
you know, you don't get your papers first. And if you get this, it means let's see what God is doing in you. Let's see what God, what gifting's in you before we say that's what you are. And so we have never been one to say, oh, that's a, you know, a woman can't be used in that. If a woman is being used in a certain gifting, what we do is we recognize the gifting. We're like, look what the Holy Spirit has done. So we want to consider the gifts that God pours out on men and women. 1 Corinthians 12, in that whole chapter where Paul is talking about the gifts of the Spirit, he says now to each one. He could have said to every man. He could have said to every woman, but he didn't. He said to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. That whatever gift he gives to man or woman, it's not just for you. It's not just for me. If I have that gift, it's for the common good. Whatever gift you have is meant to be operated in the church body because it's good for the whole body. And um, all these are the work, he goes on to say, of the one and the same Spirit. And the Spirit distributes to each one just as he determines. So the Holy Spirit gives the gifts to us. He's the one. If you see a gift operating in your life, it was God's sovereign choice to give that to you. He gave that. Now the church, what we do is we want to see. You know, I'm always looking and watching and seeing people. Do you recognize the gifting of God in someone? Whether it's, uh, you know, the list out of 1 Corinthians or if it's out of Romans, if it's serving, if it's mercy, if it's hospitality, if it's speaking in tongues, if it's prophecy, is it interpretation, is it casting out demons? Who wants that gift? And, uh, you know, none of you want that gift, casting demons out? We need that gift too. It's God's sovereign choice, and He chooses who gets the gifts. And so we want to do that even in our church. We want to look for the gifting first. Not eliminate anyone, but to say who, what gift is operating. And then there's your next feeling is God's kingdom. When we think about this scripture in 1 Timothy 2, what about God's kingdom? Here in the vineyard, you hear me talk about God's kingdom a lot because we're kingdom people. When I say the kingdom of God, what I mean is that's where God gets what he wants. When we pray, thy kingdom come, right? Jesus taught us to pray like that, right? You ever prayed that prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, here's a question. What's it going to look like in heaven for women? We're praying thy kingdom come to the earth. What does it look like for women in the kingdom of God? When Jesus sets everything up just right, when he finally comes back and he puts everything to rights, What will it look like for women in the kingdom of God? Because whatever it's going to look like there is what we pray for right now. Now, I realize that runs head on into some culture situations, and Paul does too, as we're going to see. But we always ask, what does the kingdom look like? What will it look like when everything is put to rights and God gets this place straightened out once and for all, and he comes back? What will it look like for women? What will it look like for men? What will it look like for our daughters, for our sons, for our children? What will it look like? Because whatever it's going to look like is what we want it to look like now. And that's why we're praying, bring your kingdom, Lord. Let us see a little bit of it now. That's why we pray for healing. Because in the kingdom to come, there's not going to be any sick people. 
And so we're told to to pray for people to be healed. Now, a lot of people don't get healed, but it doesn't mean some don't get healed. It doesn't mean that God doesn't want to heal. And we're told to heal. But when we see someone healed, whether it's through doctors or it's through some miraculous prayer, either way, what we see is a picture of the kingdom to come because there won't be any sick people in the kingdom. We love to feed the hungry. Why? Because in the kingdom to come, there's not going to be any hungry people. Everyone will be filled. There won't be any lonely people in the kingdom to come because the the king is there and the community is there in fullness. And so when we come alongside someone and a lonely one finally finds a friend, we have seen a part of the kingdom come. We see a picture of what it will be like when Jesus returns. When the thirsty get water, when we help drill wells and get clean water to people, we get to see a piece of what it's going to be like when the kingdom comes. When there's water and there's food aplenty. When we adopt, when we're foster parents, then we take children in that have no home because in the kingdom to come, there's not going to be anyone without a home. Everyone will feel cared for. And so the church adopts and the church fosters children and the church comes alongside the lonely and is there. Why? Because in the kingdom, there won't be anyone without family. And so we go right back to this issue. What does it look like for women in the kingdom? What does God want for women in the kingdom? And then there's God's mission. God's mission. That's your next fill-in. And first, you know, what does it look like the way we deal with this issue of women in ministry and all and, and leadership and serving in the church? How does that fit into God's mission? We need to think about that. 1 Corinthians 9 and verses 19 through 23, Paul says this about himself in the mission of God that he was called to. He says, though I am free, that is, I can do what I want to do, though I'm free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Do you get this? Paul says, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. But in whatever situation I'm in, culturally, wherever, I will submit myself almost like a slave to it so that I can share Jesus Christ in that context. The mission, the primary thing is sharing Jesus. What helps us share the good news of Christ? Paul says, I'm free enough fully to just give myself to that and I will accommodate whatever I need to in my own freedom in order to see that that's done. In 1 Corinthians 9, that same chapter, in verses 20 through 22, Paul says to the Jew, I'll be a Jew. And he was a good Jew. He says, when I'm with the Gentiles, they don't know anything about the law. Those crazy Gentiles, you know, they're free. So when I'm with a Gentile, a non-Jew, then I'm not going to bring up the law. I'm not going to talk about the law. I'll be a Gentile. He says, when the weak, when I'm with the weak, I too will be weak. When I'm with the strong, I will be strong. And he says this, I have become all things to all people so that all po- by all possible means I might save some. Wow, what a commitment to the gospel. Like whatever it takes out of me in any cultural setting, I will submit myself to it if I can just see a few people come to know Jesus Christ. When he was with the Jews, he ate kosher. If he was alive now and he came down here, 
and he was where I was, I'm from, just 15, 20 miles from here, he would eat fried chicken when he was sitting at that. And he would like it. And, uh, you know, if he was ministering to Muslims, he would eat what's called halal, that is, what is prescribed food. If he was with them, trying to share Jesus with them, he would eat their food. He would do whatever it called for so that he fit into that tradition, into that culture, so that he could share Christ. And, uh, you know, I went to Thailand a, a few, t- I've been to Thailand a few times, and the first time I went, I studied to see what I should be doing and shouldn't be doing when I get there. You know, and one of the things that, that I found out is you don't pat people on the head when you're in Thailand. You know, you see a cute little guy come along like we do. Ah, it's a cute little guy, you know. You don't do that in Thailand because the head is the highest part of the body and it's authority. It represents authority. So you don't go whacking people on the head, you know. You don't do that because that's a, that's a dis, it just totally disses them. And another thing is when you sit down, you don't point your feet at people. Like, we sit down, you know, I'm lanky and long, and I just like to stretch my legs out. I'm like, man, how am I going to sit over there? Because if you point your feet, that's the lowest point of your body. It's the part that's been walking on the dirt and all. Don't point your feet at someone because it's like calling them dirt. So what do you do? Do I just go, I'm free to do anything I want to? I'll whack anybody on the head I want, you know. I'll point my feet if I want to. Yeah, and nobody's going to hear a word I say. Nobody's going to hear the gospel because they're going to be so just insulted. They won't have anything to do with it. Our, our host said, by the way, if you really want to get to the older Thai people, uh, don't ever wear shorts. I mean, we saw tourists wearing shorts. It was 100 degrees, 90 you know, percent humidity. They said, no, wear long pants, a button-up shirt, because the older Thai will appreciate that. And so for the whole two and a half weeks, you know, we long pants, you know, and we did everything we could to try to say we recognize and respect your culture. And, uh, and Paul, I think, has this same kind of thing in mind here when we're dealing with this. So your next feeling is this, culture situation. What was the culture's situation uh, with Paul? Let me set this up. First Timothy, obviously, is written to a guy named Timothy. It doesn't mean that the book is written by Timothy. It means that this book, and there's a second book, Second Timothy, are two letters that a guy named Paul wrote to his young, uh, this young preacher and pastor that he was training. Uh, Paul had his own pastors and training group, his pit crew, and Timothy was a part of it. Timothy may have been 30 maybe a little over 30. Paul was probably in his 60s or so at this stage of the game. And so he's trying to train Timothy to be a good pastor. Evidently, Timothy is a little timid. He's a little shy. And uh, he's not one of these guys who really take charge. But Paul sees a lot in him and he's trying to help him. Well, Timothy is in a city called Ephesus. Ephesus was a, was a pretty good-sized city for this time. And Ephesus had some challenges. It had a huge temple uh, called Artemis, the Artemis Temple, which was a cult in that uh, city. It was a cult of women that uh, there was a goddess, there was a ruling goddess, and then it had all these women around the temple who uh, were prostitutes, basically. And the men would go there, and to worship in this cult meant to have sex with all the priestesses and all that. And this temple was well known in the city of Ephesus well-known. And so into that context, imagine this, here's a young man, Timothy, planting a church in this city, 
uh, with these kind of challenges. And so it's that situation that we see this letter being written to Timothy. Got this? So that's, what's going, that's a little bit of what's going on. Imagine having your first church meeting, and they met in homes, and you have people from the local cult coming in, coming into your church, your first gatherings. And uh, history, especially the last 20 years or 25 years, archaeology and historians have discovered what has been, uh, they have called now the new Roman woman. <laughs> the new Roman woman. And these women, and during this period of time, were obviously Roman women who had uh, found a certain uh, place of freedom, where now about 10 or 20 B.C. up to this era, this time, uh, they, had, they had gained enough power in culture to divorce their own husbands if they wanted to. They could run around on their husbands if they wanted to because the men in Roman society did that quite often. Well, now the women had gotten to a point in time where they had lots of money. Some of the Roman women did. They spent enormous sums on their clothes. I mean, I read of one, uh, one example where a woman spent nine months of a regular person's salary on one dress. Nine months. And so these new Roman women would get dressed up in all this clothes and the gold and the pearls and their hair, and they would be very seductive in their dress. And actually, some of the older uh, Roman women of this era would go out looking for younger men to have uh, relationships with. Even though they were married, it wouldn't matter. And where they, somebody saw them on the street, they would know that that Roman woman was somebody on the prowl. And so into this, into this little church startup, this church plant, is Timothy, the young pastor, and in walk the new Roman women into this situation. And not only were they sexually very uh, open and, and on the hunt and prowl, they were very brash, very outspoken, and they were even known to when someone was teaching, like this morning with me teaching or preaching, they were known, the new Roman women, to jump up out of their chair and charge the stage and get in the preacher's face and turn around and start carrying on conversations with everyone or maybe be putting a hit on a young man or something or telling the preacher he's wrong. That was the situation we believe was going on in this home church that Paul is writing to. It was getting out of control. It was, it was, can you imagine that? I mean, it's almost comical when you think about it. I mean, I know a lot of church planters. We planted two churches. You know, it's tough. It's, it's a lot, it's really tough, but I can't imagine having to deal with that. And so all this wealth that's pouring in and, and all. And so Timothy, Paul writes Timothy a letter. And right up front, right up front in the book, we see that there's a problem. I mean, he says that certain people are not holding to teach, you know, true doctrines any longer. They're teaching false doctrines. Well, that could have been men, and it could have been some of these new Roman women coming in and saying, no, 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 no. Here's the way it should be. And so that's the setup. In 1 Timothy 1, Timothy is told to hold on to his faith. Don't let this challenge get the best of him. And Paul even points out two guys by name and says, these two guys have been causing problems too. And I'll tell you what I've done. I've turned them over to the devil. So don't worry about them anymore. Just push them aside. Can you imagine that? Yeah, remember uh, Charlie and George? Yeah, well, I've already prayed. Turn them over to the devil. Don't pay them any other mind, Timothy. Deal with these other issues. 
I mean, there was a lot of disorder in this young church. In 1 Timothy 3, we read that people were not conducting themselves properly and that there was a need for good leadership in this church, that people were falling away. And uh, in 1 Timothy 6, that there was a lot of chatter, godless chatter going on and gossiping and, and such. I mean, this you walked into this church and you saw the new Roman women there and you saw all of this. It was probably pretty interesting anyway, you know, to go look. But the gospel could not be preached because of all of this going on. Timothy could not get the word out of how good Jesus was and what he had come to do because of all of this going on in the church service. So let's look at 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 10, the women's dress. Why would he say what he did? I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Why would he, why would he just slap it down and say, you can't wear what you want in a church any longer? Because these new Roman women were getting out of control. They were coming into church, you know, and nobody could worship. Nobody could focus on God. Everybody was looking at them. And so Paul says, Timothy... You're going to have to shut this down right now. For this church to make it, you've got to tell these ladies they can't dress like that. They're disrupting the whole assembly. Tell them to, to dress humbly and then let their good deeds show, not how many great clothes they have. And, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. He's just trying to calm things down. I mean, the public could not tell coming into a church like this whether it was a cult or whether it was a church. They couldn't tell because the, the women, these new Roman women, were dressing like they, they were a part of the Artemis cult. And so the men were distracted and, you know, it was, just, it was just chaos. And so Paul puts an end to it and he says, look, there needs to be a difference in this church. So Timothy, tell those ladies, stop dressing like that because of the culture, because of the situation. Dress in a way that's best for the gospel. And I think this was, a, this was a specific problem for, you know, in a specific church at a specific time. And the only way to deal with it was Paul had to really put, you know, put his foot down and he had to let young Timothy deal with it. Then there was the woman's demeanor. In 1 Timothy 2.11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Well, remember, these ladies were coming in, wah! you know, and getting up in front of the church and prancing up and down the stage, taking the speaker's position and, uh, and taking over. And so Paul combats this with tell the women that they should learn in quietness. Now, this is true for the men as well. But the women were not following this. These new Roman women were just upsetting the place. And uh, it could have been, too, that some of the Jewish Christian women didn't even understand the language because we've learned in the past that they weren't even taught to read, the Jewish women. They, they, I don't know what language was being speaking, spoken, whether it was Greek or Arabic or some, some other dialect in this at the time. And so it could have been that some of the women sitting in the meeting, you get bored after a while because you don't know what he's saying, like some of you now. You know? And you get, like, you get bored and you go, finally one of the ladies turns around and goes, you understand what he's saying? And the other lady goes, I don't. And so they, they hit their husbands on the side. Hey, what's he saying? He goes, wait, wait a, wait a while. I'm listening. 
I don't understand what's going on. So they get bored and they start carrying on a conversation. And before you know it, the whole meeting, you got the new Roman woman, you got people who don't understand what's going on. You just got chaos. Paul says, look, you're going to have to put your foot down at least for a while and settle things down. And this being quiet, uh, learn in quietness, literally means that it doesn't mean be quiet completely. It means have a quiet spirit. It was more about the mood. It was more about the mood, like control yourself. Have a quiet spirit, a spirit of being able to learn and, and appreciate the people around you. And so uh, remember to do the same thing. So that was why God, I mean, why Paul said what he did about the dress. And then the women's dominance in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Does that mean forever? Does that mean in every single church, forever, a woman can never preach the Bible, can never teach the Bible? As long as there's a man in the meeting, the woman can never teach. There are churches that believe that. And there are good friends of mine that believe that. And, and uh, is that what he means? Is that, is that what he's getting at? Or is he getting to the point that, look, this thing has gotten so out of hand that I just want you to be quiet? You ever done that with your kids? They're running around ah, crazy, you can't think, and you go, you've got to sit quiet for the next five minutes. You know, and you put them in your chair, and they have to be quiet. That's what I see with Paul. He's like, okay, I've had it up to here. Sit down and shut up. We don't say that, though. It's not bad to say to your kids, I guess. You say that to adults, so right. And sit down and be quiet so that something, so the gospel can be heard. And when he talks about authority and like having, not allowing a woman to teach or to assume authority over man, that word authority that Paul uses is only used once in the Bible, and it's right here. It's never used again. It's never been used before. And as a matter of fact, in antiquity, it's only been used four times. It's a very rare word. And it's one that Paul chose for this situation. And what it means is do not domineer over. That's what it means. Do not be domineering. Doesn't mean you can't talk, you can't teach. It says don't be a domineering person. That one word, that's what it means. So I don't want you coming up front arguing with the teacher, the preacher, grabbing the podium, dominating the men in the church. That's what he's saying. And as I said, does this mean that women cannot have any place of teaching in a church? Well, over in Romans 16, this guy, Paul, wrote that book, and as he's closing out the book of Romans, he has a list of women that he just brags on. I mean, he has Phoebe there in Romans 16.1. Phoebe, whom he says, in, he tells the Roman church this, whatever she may require of you, give it to her. She has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. This is what Paul is saying about Phoebe. Benefactor means one who stands before or one who leads or presides over a group. So Paul is saying, Phoebe is one who has led a group for me. She has stood beside me in the leadership. So whatever she needs to do her work in the Roman church, give it to her. Do you see this? First Timothy, the church at Ephesus, situational, bad situation. Romans, not so much. 
He's saying, Phoebe, she's done a good job there. Support her. He goes on and he talks about this couple, Prisca and Aquila. Prisca's the wife, Aquila's the husband. It's normal fare in Scripture that you'll see the husband first and the wife second. And that is somewhat of a patriarchal view of things that you see a lot through the Bible. But when it comes to Romans 16, you see it reversed. The wife is first and the husband second. I don't want to draw too much from that, but it is noticeable that you see a little difference there. And Prisca, he says about this husband and wife team that they are his co-workers in Christ, both of them. They are co-workers in Christ Jesus among all the churches of the Gentiles. So they have worked hard with Paul. And it says he gives thanks for their ministry. And then he mentions that they host a church in their home. And then, uh, you know, there's no mention of subordination roles or any of that. There's Mary mentioned in Romans 16. There's Trophina. Yes, that is a woman's name. Trophina and Tryphosa. These are women that served with Paul. Persis out of Romans 16. And there's a woman named Junia mentioned in Romans 16, 7, who says about, get this, he says she is prominent among the apostles. Prominent among the apostles. Basically saying she was an apostle. You've got to read all of Scripture and put it in context when we read it. Then there's Judea and Syntyche out of Philippians 4. And Paul is writing the church at Philippi where he says that these two ladies struggled beside him in the work of the gospel. And they were having a little tiff among themselves. And so in that letter he says, see if you can't kind of help them mend their ways and get along, you know. Then in the book of Acts we read about Philip, the evangelist, who had four daughters who were prophets. No wonder he was out of the house a lot, you know. Imagine, every time he walked in the door, Dad, I got a word for you from God. It's like, no, okay, I'm out of here. Four daughters. You know, I don't know how you can prophesy and not speak out. Four daughters that he had. And there's Mary who sat at Jesus' feet. We haven't even spoken about Jesus today. I had so much to cover. Jesus is the best friend you ladies have ever had. He, he had these ladies supporting him ministering to him all the way from the beginning all the way to the cross and the first ones to see him out of the grave. Mary sat at his feet in Luke 10 just like a disciple would. Someone who was there to become a leader herself. That was the posture. The disciple would sit at the rabbi's feet and be taught and listen and be quiet and pick up everything that they could from the master so that at one time, sometime in the years ahead, they too would be leading and they too would be sharing what the Master had taught them. And there's the woman's deception in 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived. Sounds like you're throwing it all on Eve, like, you know, like man goes, Honey, if you just hadn't gave me that apple... You know, if you just hadn't listened to that serpent, don't you know they're bad, you know, blaming the woman all the time? Is that what Paul's doing here? No, I don't think so. I think what he is doing, he's pointing to these Roman women, these new Roman women, and he's saying, look, you're acting just like Eve. You're causing problems just like she did in the beginning, and you, you need to stop it. You need to stop. It's the way of, of Paul saying, now shut it down. 
Quit the behavior, the way you've been behaving. I was in a church um, years ago where we had a guy that would prophesy, you know, he would, he would have, say he had word from the Lord and he would stand up and say, I got something from God. And he would say it and it was just dumb. I mean, we'd go, really? God's confused. I mean, I, you know, I've never known God to be confused. Finally, it went on one time, and the other pastor came over to me. He says, come on, we got to go talk to that guy. And so we went over. He pulls the guy to the side, and he goes, listen, I don't want you prophesying anymore in this church until I tell you you can. And I think this is very similar to what's going on. And the guy took it like a man, and he was a big dude, like 6'5", 250 pounds. He just looked, and he says, yes, sir. And you know what he did? And two months later, the pastor grabbed me and said, come with me. We went back and he said, you know what? You've done everything I've asked you to do. You're free to prophesy now. But make sure it's God, okay? And uh, I think the same thing is going on in 1 Timothy. Paul had to say, look, we've got to shut this down. This is too chaotic. So let's shut it down. Get some control. Get some order in this meeting. But was it for all time's sake in every single church? Not if we read Romans 16 and we read that long list of women. So how do we, uh, oh, the last scripture in 1 Timothy 2.15, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness. Now, what does that mean? Women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness. What I believe he's saying here is this. You new Roman women, you need to go back home Develop your relationship with your husband and take care of your children. As an example to what's going on here, you need to stop the behavior, the dressing, the way you're doing this, and go home and raise your kids and be an example because you're an example of the Artemis Temple right now. You need to come along and behave a different way so that people can hear the gospel. And so what's our prescription? What is God's prescription for us as a church? I think it all comes down to this. This is your last fill-in, God's prescription, that we be respectable or that respectable within our culture rather than scandalous in such a way that people get to hear the gospel. Our culture is totally different than this culture, totally different. Matter of fact, if, if we were not to allow women to serve in leadership or or affirm the value of woman, they, the culture looks down on that. They don't applaud that. And so we don't have that challenge in our culture of a temple of Artemis here. But we all are called to submit ourselves to whatever is profitable for the gospel. Do you get this? Do you see this? That is what we are called to do. There would not be any missions around this world if women had not stepped into that responsibility hundreds of years ago. Some of you, if you were ever a Southern Baptist, you know who Lottie Moon is, or you saw the little offerings on the back of the chairs, the Lottie Moon offering. And Lottie Moon was a young girl who became a a missionary to China in the 1800s. And she said this, how many there are who imagine that because Jesus paid it all, they need pay nothing, forgetting that the prime object of their salvation was that they should follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ in bringing back a lost world to God. It's about gifting, not about whether you're male or female. And one of another 
awesome missionary was a lady named Gladys Aylward. Gladys was raised in a church culture where they said women could not be pastors. And women probably shouldn't be missionaries, but listen to her after she'd spent so much time on the mission field back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. I wasn't God's first choice for what I've done for China. I don't know who it was. I must have, it must have been a man, a well-educated man. I don't know what happened. Perhaps he died. Perhaps he wasn't willing. And God looked down and saw Gladys Aylward, and God said, well, she's willing. <laughs> so she went. She went. And one of my favorite characters is a lady named Mala Mo. <laughs> what a great name. Mala Mo. She lived between 1863 and 1953, and she was a missionary to Africa. She was quite a character. There's a story of her. It says that she confronted a Swazi man and told him that she was going to pray for him to get saved. And he, he just didn't like it, and it scared him. And the next day, Mala saw this guy walking, and when he saw her, he took off and ran. Well, Mala took off after him, running after him, chased him down, threw him down on the ground, and it says she shouted to him to come back, grabbing him by the arm, pulled him down into the grass, and prayed mightily to God to save him from Satan and hell. It was more than he could stand. He wept and prayed and got saved. <laughs> Go, Mala. There she is with her, with her outreach. And her, one of her sayings is this. This would make a great T-shirt. What are we here for? To have a good time with Christians or to save sinners? <laughs> People like Mary Slosser and uh, Mary Richardson Walker, Elizabeth Elliot, Lottie Moon we've already mentioned, Helen Rosebrer, Mildred Cable, Amy Carmichael, Adele Field, Malamo, Mabel Francis, and Elizabeth Eliza Davis George, the first African-American missionary, the daughter of a slave, who was the first black missionary to a Baptist congregation in Texas who said, I want to give my life to the cause of the gospel. And then someone that I'm very aware of, Jackie Pullinger, and if you don't know her, she was in the vineyard for some time. At 20 years old, she takes a one-way ticket to Hong Kong as a single girl, where she ministers and continues 35 years later to minister to all the drug addicts in that hidden city in Hong Kong. And she's given her whole life there to seeing them come to Christ. My opinion, we need every single person on the front line. We need gifted men and we need gifted women. We need everyone to say, here am I, Lord, send me. And we as a church, we need to be looking into each other's lives and look for the giftings and the callings. And then we need to come alongside, whether they be male or they be female, and let's get around them and encourage them and see that everyone gets to fulfill the will of God for their life. We need more leaders here, more leaders, more pastors, more church planters, more elders. And I say, if the women are gifted and God has gifted them as such, let them come. Let's stand. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.